Okay, so what I decided to do is take you on a, a port, uh, a trip of pictures, and then I'm going to bring some things together. So here, this is in a mountain village, not far from the gastronomic capital of central Italy called Norcia. Have any of you ever heard of Norcia? Okay, so if you've been to Norcia, it's absolutely a, a culinary wonderland. So for those of you who are not familiar with it, it'd be interesting to do a Google search on it. N-O-R-C-I-A, Norcia, N-O-R-C-I-A. And so we ended up, we, I was looking for this bean right here. Now, beans, as you will discover, if you're not familiar with beans, are not from Europe. They're not from Italy. They, in fact, come from South America. So this bean right here is a very old variety of bean, which is known as the Mona Kelly bean, which just basically means the monk bean, because they were grown both in monasteries and in convents. Well, as it turns out, I got to Norcia in this quest for finding this bean. They said, well, if you go to this little town called, uh, oh, what the hell is it? It's Katia. Oh, it's a little tiny town. I'll, I'll think of the name. You will find this lady who has a restaurant at the very top of the hill, and she has these beans. So this is the kind of dilemma that I get into because I am interested in both wild plants, but also domesticated plants, of which the beans are domesticated. So we ended up getting to this little village, and we see that people all over the world still value the treasure of the past. And it's very important because in Italy, they certainly do. The next picture... So this, of course, is one of the great thrills of Italy. I mean, uh, eating and going to cafes and just reveling in food, food and its culture. Here we are just in a little restaurant, but just the cacophony of the place is enough to make you realize that there's a certain ambiance, a certain uh, love in a place like this that you don't necessarily see when you go into places like McDonald's or Burger King. It's not anonymous like it is in those places. Here, the people say, ma come stai? Ma che perché si qua? And they're asking you all kinds of questions. And before you know it, I mean, it's like my grandma used to be, because I think she was Italian when it really got down to it. She would sit into a grocery line. By the time she would check out, she was talking about the, the, the intimate family relationships of this person's family. And she was like hugging them and everything. And I thought, man, I must be Italian, because that's what happens in Italy. So I, I remember being in here. This is my girlfriend, but we were in there. And within a couple minutes, these two here, they had got down to the fact of where we were, how many years we had been together, uh, what were we doing there, where were we going next, what kind of liquor we liked, uh, what kind of coffee we liked. I mean, it was all an interrogation, but it was the most unbelievable relationship. And that's what Italians are like. Next. So then there's food. There's complicated food and there's simple food. And the simple food that we're going to look at as we go through some of these pictures, is in fact the relationship that people had to the land. There were always rich people in Italy, princes and the people who controlled large areas of land, but then there were the commoners, the people who ate things like pulses, among those uh, fava beans and chichi beans, which aren't so familiar to people today and especially North America. Next, please. So it goes back a long time. I mean, the Italian peninsula was way before the Roman Empire, but just to condense things and make it more relevant to the way we're talking, the Romans already were growing things from all over the known universe, we should say. The known universe being the confines of the Mediterranean, northern Africa, up into the, what is the present-day uh, United Kingdom, all the way over to the, the Ural Mountains. There was transmission and exchange of, of goods and things and people. 
So the Romans were already growing gardens, and uh, this agriculture is pretty well known. In fact, much of the expansion of Rome uh, was due to quest for valuable land to grow crops, whether it was in Volubilis, which is now in the present-day um, country of Morocco, or whether it was in the north, whether it was the area outside of Chart, the Romans were looking for fertile ground so they could enhance their food production and thus strengthen their empire. So we already have huge food traditions. Next. And that takes us to modern-day Italy, a hodgepodge, a quilt of people living on the land. As Dario pointed out to one of his classes today, it's not very wild as a country. Most of Italy has been under the plow, has been under the saw, has been under the pick for centuries. And so there isn't much wilderness left in Italy. But even that said, it isn't totally a destroyed nature. There's a certain uh, bucolicness, a certain relationship that Italians have with their land that has come to reach a homeostasis where there's a balance between people living and nature living. And so that's what you see when you see little towns like this uh, on the way to Sarconi in southern Italy. And just looking at the, what I call the, the quintessential Italian um, paysage or countryside, vineyards. Almost anywhere you go in Italy, you're going to see some type of vine growing. In most cases, it's going to be grapes, but in some places now it's supplanted by tropicals or subtropicals that have been brought in, whether it's in Sicily or southern Italy. You'll see things like kiwis and all, all types of vine fruit, which weren't normally there uh, 100 or 200 years ago. Next, please. Then you have what I call the Great Migrations. So among the Great Migrations are things like apples. This is not in Italy. This happens to be in the former Soviet uh, Republic of Georgia, but it just sets the scenario. The origin of things like apples and pears most likely was the Caucasus mountain region. That's countries that now exist like Azerbaijan, like Armenia, like Georgia, uh, Tajikistan, Tur Turkmenistan, Central Asia. Those then would influence and flow westward so that eventually, if we go to the next one, here we are in Georgia and here we see a plethora of apples. Next. Now we're in Armenia where they have all types of dried pears and dried apricots and dried uh, peaches, dried apples. The, the migration westward of these fruits, because we believe that peaches probably came from China, but now they're a quintessential part of European cuisine. They're a quintessential fruit of the summer. Their Italians couldn't live without their nectarines, without the albicocos, and without their peaches. And so it's very interesting that these things gradually migrated to the peninsula, being brought with people, which is a point which I want you to remember because it's not unique to peaches and apricots and pears and apples, but it's essential that human beings have moved food all over the planet, which raises the question, which puts a red flag up for all of us to consider why we have governments now supposedly telling us what we can move in terms of plant material and not. They say it's for plant safety or for agricultural safety, but the reality is all of these things moved around for thousands of years, and that's how we have it the way it is. It's very unlikely that we're going to endanger very much when it comes to pathogens, and more is a way of governments becoming controlling and authoritative when it comes to humans moving plants around. And I'll point out some other examples as we move. Here we're back in Georgia again, just showing more apple diversity. Next. And this is in Romania, so you can see the spread uh, westward of apples just in these pictures. Next. 
So here's a great example of what happened to Western Europe, but this is in Armenia. So these are wild fruits that I collected on an uh, expedition to Armenia in 2014. And what I was really looking for is the diversity of wild fruits that eventually became domesticated. So we have quinces, we have hawthorns, we have crataegeus, various berries. We have what's known as the medlar. We have rose hips here. We have uh, a certain species of persimmon. We have iliognis, which is known as the autumn olive. And then we have plums here. So all of these fruits, including wild pear species, were eventually domesticated. It's then credible to say that the Caucasus mountain regions are one of the true cradles of many of the northern temperate orchard fruits, which is an amazing story. Next. So another apple in Georgia. I'm just about through apples. Then this takes me to a book which I find interesting because we talk about the culinary tradition of different countries. And anyone speak German here who can properly translate the title? I think I know what it says. It's, it's the culinary traditions of food in the Alps. So it's a book which is uh, really a gorgeous book. Next one, then, we'll introduce the subject matter. This is about beans. And, of course, this is now writing as if this is a well-established culinary tradition that beans are a part of the Alpine diet. So of the Alps, we have Austria, we have Germany, we have uh, northern Italy. And these mountain people, then, assimilated and took the bean in. But just like I introduced the apple and the pear and the peach and the apricot, these did not come from the Alps. In fact, these beans came from the New World. It was a very uh, amazing occurrence, the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus, that opened up the floodgates that allowed an extraordinary exchange between East and West. Turns out that what we brought back from the New World included things like bean and corn and tomatoes, tobacco, potatoes, and the list goes on and on and on. What they took from the old world to the new world includes things like fava beans, chechi beans, beets, carrots, broccoli, cabbage, and a bunch of other things. So it, what was very important for me to try to explain is that although beans are now incredibly rooted in uh, European tradition, 500 years ago, they didn't exist there. So they have been assimilated so much so that when you mentioned the Borlodi bean, Dario, it's a quintessential Italian ingredient. I mean, half the dishes in Italy that combine beans with macaroni and things cannot be made if it was not for the Borlodi bean. So, so Italianized is the Borlodi bean. It doesn't come from there. It comes from Peru. Next, please. Another beautiful picture of beans. So we get back to that Monticelli bean. So the interesting thing about studying plant diversity and food plant diversity is, first of all, beans are of one species. Everything that you see here is one species of beans. Just like we are all homo sapiens in this room and we all look very different, uh, beans take on their own personal characters. They're, in my own collection, I have roughly 1,500 varieties of beans ranging in color from blood red to mottled, speckled, striated, variegated, blue, green, yellow, orange, red, pink, white. I have almost all the colors of a rainbow represented in the coats of beans. So what is particularly interesting is that if you go back far enough, if you take these beans right here and I were to go to Peru where I was four weeks ago, you start finding the original beans grown in the Andes that are now being grown on the other side of the world and may have been for hundreds of years. A very interesting thing that 
if you save these seeds, they maintain their integrity. So that's an interesting point. Next. So there's all kinds of bean growers in Italy. This happens to be a family that lives in a village called Trevio, which is not far from that wonderful town I spoke of called Norcia in central Italy. And the uh, Angelini family is a self-sufficient family like so many Italian country folk are. And here they show just how self-sufficient they are. Today we had the young man, what, what was his name, Franco. Franco gave a talk about sausage making and, uh, in his report, and here they were doing it just like he described the old-fashioned traditional way. Now what's interesting is I went there because I heard that they had beans, they were bean collectors, and I get there and so we, we get to see their bean collection. Next one. Here we are. So when I asked the Angelini brothers why they started collecting beans, and here he has Borlodi beans in his hand, uh, the reason he said he collected beans is because his no-no died, his grandfather died, and he decided that he wanted to keep the family tradition going. So when the grandfather died, they were cleaning out his, his room and stuff, and some of the drawers in the dresser had all these old bean varieties, and they thought, oh, we can't possibly throw these away. We've got to plant them in honor of our grandfather. And he said at that point, we were stuck, because once we grew them out, we couldn't throw those away, and we didn't want to eat them all, so we kept saving them. And now they've been preserving these for about uh, 10 years, and they are really proud of maintaining the heritage that their grandfather gave them. So a lot of this uh, agricultural tradition comes from valuing and treasuring what other people did before you. Remember then how I relate that to our world, to our U.S. of A., where things old are often looked at as being not new enough to keep and we get rid of them. So we, we're in this kind of um, weird world where we always have to in innovate and, and at the expense that things don't seem valuable enough, we don't protect them. I mean, all you have to do is think of strip malls. It's not like when an, a strip mall gets old that we put a historic plaque in front of it. No, usually we bulldoze it. We build another Walmart even bigger and stronger. So that's the kind of way we approach things. And maybe what really needs to be done is we need to start building traditions for our own uh, children and for their children. So it starts with guys old like us. Then we have the next generation. Excuse me? <laughs> it does start. I have a 23-year-old daughter. I'm going to be a grandfather here next week or in a few weeks here. So we start by building traditions and valorizing because that gives us a link to humanity. Another thing that people ask me about Italy is why does Italy have such a humanity about it? And I, I have to ans answer this question with a, an experience that I've had by walking the streets of Rome. I like go to Piazza Navona, and I'm sitting there in Piazza Navona, and you know, there's almost cacophony and a circus going on. Then I realize that same circus has probably been going on for 2,000 years, and if it's tenable, I don't know exactly how to describe why, but it seems that you can fill the ages of people who have walked through that plaza. You don't get that when you go to a Kroger parking lot. And I'm sorry, that's the difference. So that is something that is unique about Italy and certainly stays um, you know, preemptive in my mind why tradition is essential to the human psyche. And this is another bean guy. And I, I ended up, this is what I was speaking of when I was trying to describe the town of Sarconi. Uh, we got information about this Fagiolista. He's a bean grower who has been raising beans for, uh, in his family for four generations. So again, uh, explicit proof that the Italians accepted beans so wholeheartedly that they turned it into their own. And people all over the world turned things into their own. So this is Domenico Belisario, an incredible bean grower.
So then the thing also encompasses this bean, which is called a runner bean, coming from Central and South America. The runner bean also made its way to the, the uh, old world and was quickly adopted and put into the cuisine. These are now called fagiolani, being the big beans that they cook. Have you ever cooked with fagiolanis? No, this is pretty important all through Central and Northern um, Italy, less so in the far south because they like cooler weather. And this is another story. So this gentleman here probably has really no real understanding where all his spectacular melons and squash come from. Um, he, he is a farmer in central uh, Italy, central north Italy near Mantua. He raises all of these really weird and unusual melons that the Italians have bred and selected over years and also very rare squash. So here we are sitting at his kitchen table and he's doling out the gold to me, giving me all these rare heirloom seeds. So we can just go through, let's see what's here, Dario, in terms of pictures. Okay, well, this always brings up a joke because they say... Um, I say something about melons and then it just gets out of control. But anyway, she is my uh, translator. She's my Russian translator. So we filmed with her several times in uh, Ukraine and Moldova and everything. And uh, so Svetlana is holding a melon that is coming from the Ukraine. Again, just like the story of apples, although Italy now loves melons and grows lots of them, Melons did not come from Italy, but it's just, again, further proof of how they adopted things and accepted it into their culture, such that now you can't eat prosciutto uh, con melone, or you, you, you haven't eaten it unless you eat melone con prosciutto in, in most restaurants in, say, Tuscany or whatever. The spread of the melon is from the east to the west. We believe, and, and Dari and I were talking about this today, we were kind of trying to analyze what the history was because we don't have exact history, but art tells us a little bit about it. We know at least by the 15th century that the French and the Italians had melons. It may go back several hundred years before that or even hundreds of years before that, but we just don't have exact pictorial uh, proof of it. So these are in Armenia. And, of course, uh, we believe the epicenter of melon culture is Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, which is even farther to the east, right here in uh, Georgia. So that's another incredible place where you see lots of diversity of melons. Again, real close, relatively speaking, to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Turkmenistan. And then, so here are some of the Italian varieties. Moscatello, Zatigiallo, Pasta Bianca. Moscatello di Squarazinella, Arancino, Moscatello di Castelverde, Banana Pasta Gialla. And then we have another group of melons. So those are all interesting melons that were being raised by the Longhis. That was Mr. Longhi there uh, near Mantua. And he, he decided a few uh, years back that he would save all these old varieties. And so he has a, really a premier collection of ancient, in quotes, heirloom vegetables. Uh, for the most of you, when you hear the word heirloom, what does it mean? I mean, I'll just take some chances. Uh, the young man up, up there, what's heirloom mean? For, for the intent of the way agriculture and gardening and farming went, you saved your seeds at the end of the season for the next year. So inevitably, the time scale moves. The father, the grandfather dies. The father gets them. He hands them down to his children. It's simply an heirloom. The actual term 
coined heirloom was uh, attributed to a guy by the name of Kent Wheely, who started a seed-saving organization in Decorah, Iowa, back in the 70s. He's the one who kind of popularized the term uh, heirloom. And it, it's just exactly that, handing it down. So the other thing the Italians did with melons is quite interesting because these things also take on their own character. Like you saw those little melons that uh, the, I just named that had all their unique Italian names, they're mostly small kind of what we call cocktail melons. Another group of melons, which are completely different in their use, is a number of melons called tortorellis or Boresi scoparelli. And so these are all melons which are grown for use as a vegetable because they're not sweet and they're used like cucumbers. And most of these are found predominantly down in southern Italy. Are you familiar with these? No. So they cut them up and they use them like cucumbers and they're actually better tasting than cucumbers because they have a little bit more flavor and kind of a nuttiness to them. So they're really flavorful, especially when you douse them with virgin olive oil. They're not sweet. They, they're not ripened. They use them as green vegetables. And just as you go through, look at the pictures because they're very interesting. There's quite a few different varieties of these. Um, cucumero meloni, as they're called. Are these the cucuzzi? Uh, uh, cucuzzi is different. Cucuzzi is Lagenaria cesaria, which is a gourd that is harvested when it is green. It's a completely different species. So the scientific name of this is Cucumis milo, which is it's related to a cantaloupe and a honeydew. It's, in the same it's the same exact species. It would cross with a cantaloupe and a honeydew. But these are all used as vegetable fruits. And of course, the story goes on. So if I, if I have my, okay, so the story goes on. So then we have the continuation of the story. So the melons then go to Italy from the east. Well, the Italians then were taking melons to their colonies, which took them to Ethiopia and Somalia and places where melons had never been. So now you see these little kids down in Ethiopia. This was not far from, um, uh, north, from Gondor in northern uh, Ethiopia and melons like this. So it's another story. It's very interesting how things get around. And then there's the potato. Of course, the potato is loved by Italians. They do all kinds of things with potatoes, but Italians did not have potatoes prior to Columbus in 1492. Then you have this. Of course, we know what they use corn for in Italy. They make polenta. Polenta, of course, is the staple food of much of central and northern Italy. And it's ground up cornmeal that's cooked and served with meat, with gravies, with various uh, adornments, because it's just an essential part of eating. Well, polenta before was mostly millet. Uh, they may have used lentiques before, ground up things. And at the end of this uh, presentation, we'll see that they actually used a type of pea uh, called a rovicio to make a type of polenta as well. But here I am in northern Italy in the Tyrolean uh, Alps with uh, Claudia um, Worth, who, whose husband will become quite prominent in some of the next ones. So they took corn then, introduced, and now everyone in northern Italy who lives in the countryside who makes polenta grows their own corn. And what has happened is there's all kinds of new varieties that have developed according to the Italian uh, climate and their, to, to the various ways they harvest it. Well, climate and selection, I mean, you know, it's the diversity of life that is so exciting. If there's something I can leave you with also, it's just be curious and get excited about learning about these things that exist because we're just oblivious to it if you don't look. Once you start looking, it's like a book that never ends. 
So these are some of the original corn uh, varieties that were taken from Peru and also from Mexico. These happen to all be from Peru. So what you will see next then, this is a variety. So if you, if you, if you jump back to the other one, back please, you see this right here, which is not terribly diverse to, yeah, forward, to this one right here. This happens to be Picoletto Rosso di Canovese. So this is a variety of uh, polenta corn, which comes from Canova, and it's a very rare variety, and the lady only had a few cobs to give us, but we got some seeds of this to grow out. Oh, it'll absolutely grow here. The biggest challenge when we're growing corn in the United States is to keep it from being polluted by genetically modified corn. And there's, you know, that's a discussion all of its own. Here's some corn that is being raised by Otto Wirth, the, the husband of, of Clara. And they live in a house. This is really exciting. Where we're taking these pictures, it's been in the family since 1637. The exact same family has been continuously living in the same house. Talk about kind of a psyche, huh? I've been in houses in Italy where people have lived in them since, um, or for more than eight or 900 years. The same family in the same house. Astounding. So then we have the tomato. Now, you can't go to Italy... You can't go to a restaurant and not realize that the Italians are crazy for tomatoes. They love tomatoes inside and out. They love them on every dish. They love them dried, fried, boiled. It doesn't matter. They love tomatoes, even powdered tomatoes. Now, tomatoes, this one happens. They have a romantic name. It's called Venus Tit, Tepti um, di Venus. And these are grown down by Naples. And of course, they're one of the unique bunches of tomatoes that we call storage tomatoes because you don't need to refrigerate these. You can bundle them up, hang them on your porch, and they will last uh, up to a year without desiccating and without rotting. There's the little guy standing right there. So does he know that tomatoes do not come from Italy? In fact, you could probably get into arguments because he's "Mai una cosa di Italia, non si frega niente di questo, è un italiano." I've gotten into arguments with Italians about this. They'd say, "Oh, it's from here. These are from here," but it's not from there. Sorry, Luigi. This is what happens with the tomato. So originally, the tomato comes from Mexico. As you see, it has a, a unusual route. It goes over to Spain. In Spain, it was raised as a decorative plant for at least quite a few decades, it was considered um, a dangerous plant, perhaps because of its relationship to a plant called mandrake. Turns out that mandrake is poisonous, but uh, the interesting thing is then, is that the tomato wasn't instantly accepted as food. It wasn't until, what, the 1770s, the 1750s in Italy, that they started cooking with it. It took almost 200 years for it to be actually accepted as a food. The when it was first given a name, it was given the scientific name Lycopersicon. Lyco meaning wolf in um, Greek, and persicon meaning peach in Latin. So you end up with this wolf peach. Then it was given the name Pomodoro because it was thought to have mystical, uh, romantic properties, maybe like the mandrake too. But eventually it was soon, uh, eventually it was accepted into the cuisine. And you can see its dispersal around the world ends up to be fascinating because it went from Spain, then it went to France, then it went to Italy, then it gets over to Turkey, and then it moves all through Russia. So we have all kinds of cultivars, varieties of tomatoes that grow in Russia that are specifically adapted to fast fruit production 
and they end up being very cold hardy, some of them growing even in 40 degree weather. Then they go down to Asia and the Asians go crazy over them. They go down to Africa, they go down this way, and then they even move into South America. So I've collected tomatoes all over the world, particularly for different reasons, but it's fascinating how this fruit made its way everywhere. So this is just a little gastronomic story of it in French. Then we have the next one, the conquest of Northern Europe of the tomato. So it was then, it was somewhere it says here, uh, accepted in 1731, the botanist Philip Miller gives it a name. There you see it, Lycopersicon. And then it was finally uh, given the name Lycopersicum esculentum, which meant edible because they finally uh, realized that it was edible and it wasn't toxic. And this is the diversity of the tomato today. This is at a French tomato festival, um, which is pretty interesting. Hundreds of different varieties of tomatoes. We'll go through a couple more slides just to show its adaption. Delice de Newly. Really beautiful little paste tomato about the size of your thumb, uh, top of your thumb. All this incredible diversity. Tomatoes, tomatoes, tomatoes. Just go through them just to show that people go bonkers for tomatoes now. I have one friend who's like a Forrest Gump in Illinois. He has 5,500 varieties of tomatoes. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, she should have asked me about that character. So we'll just jump through this. So the Italians, veramente, they accepted these things and they put them into their culture. So part of that enculturization, if you will, of all of these wonderful vegetables as they were introduced, the story of the tomato, the story of the bean, it goes through routes of the rulers. It was said that the original conquistadors brought back beans. They gave them to the Emperor Charles V. This would have been prior to 1530, 1525, who then gave them to the Pope, Pope Clement VII, who then would give them to the monastic communities because, as we will see, monastic communities were not only academic centers, kind of like modern universities, but they were also centers of cultivation and probably some of the more learned growers. So we'll see inside, uh, I think this right here is... Um, Monte Cassino, the restructured, rebuilt Monte Cassino because it was blown up during World War II. But this will give you an idea. Whoops. That will give you an idea of one part of the courtyard garden. This used to be filled with herbs and with vegetables. It was very important to the monastic community that they were self-sufficient. And as you will see, they also had outflanks where they gardened and had vineyards as well. Well, Mendel, think of Mendel then coming up with his ideas. I mean, it was all because of that. And there's another view from it. So you can see that these were centers of agriculture. The monks were industrious, they worked hard, and they had to make sure they had their daily bread. Things then that bring us to Italy include rose hips. Uh, well, that's not true. This is completely American, so that shouldn't be there. But this is Cornus moss, which is another uh, European fruit. And then rose hips are European. Next. Okay, so these are some great stories. This is truly Italian. In fact, it's an extraordinary vegetable that's related to cabbage. It's called a neone. And this vegetable, according to Pancrazio, that is this gentleman's name, he looks like a little elf from some, I think he looks like he's out of Geppetto's book or whatever. He is a northern farmer. And this story it came because I went to this very unusual seed swap 
near Genoa, Italy, and this consortium of farmers who grew this uh, vegetable had studied its history and had confirmed through archaeologists and through anthropologists that it had a history of being raised in the, the central Po Valley for over 2,000 years. And it's a virtually unknown vegetable. It's not a turnip. It's a cabbage that produces a large root. How many of you know what kohlrabi is? Kohlrabi is a very sweet, uh, cabbage-y type of tasting thing. It doesn't taste uh, hot or piquant as a turnip. Well, this is a fantastic, fantastic vegetable. And there it is against a beautiful pleat of moss. Excuse my ignorance. So you cut... Everything on this thing, everything is edible. You can cook the leaves like uh, kale. Right. You can uh, trim that up. You can cut it. You can eat it raw with salt on it, or you can cook it. And every way you eat it, it's delicious. Okay, so there's other specialties. One of them is saffron. In, the, in Umbria, saffron is extremely uh, popular and very delicious. Uh, it is the uh, anthers of crocuses, so it's a very costly commodity as well. There you see 15 euros for probably milligrams of it. And this is a story which starts with this gentleman here that I'm going to introduce to you. So this is Klaus Piestrich. He's the curator and the... Um, a research director at Gottesleben Institute, which used to be um, a very important gene bank in East Germany, one of the most important seed collections in the entire world. They have over 400,000 different kinds of seeds. Turns out Klaus was giving me a story about a seed that he found in northern Italy that was almost extinct, and it's a story of Italian resilience because his family, uh, Otto Wirth, and some of his villager friends had been growing the last remaining seeds of a type of lupine that they made coffee with. So it led me on an excursion. I went. Wait a second. They make coffee, they make coffee out of it. You mean like a drink? Yes. They, so they roast these right. lupine beans, right. which are only grown in a village called Altrai or Antanarivo uh, in northern Italy in the Tyrolean Alps. And he led me to Otto Wirth. It was funny because when I got to the village, I went to the comune and I said, Ma c'è uno Otto Wirth in questo villaggio, in questo paese? And I said, Sì, sì, ma perché ci vuole parlare con Otto? Ho detto, Perché sono qua? Perché voglio trovare il caffè di Altrai. Ma certo, lui era molto contento di parlare con te. So he would be very happy to speak with you. So I went to this guy's house and he was just so thrilled that a foreigner other than Klaus, because Klaus had already been there, had come to talk to him about his ancient tradition. So we'll see what it is. So here we are. We're doing research on it. That's my daughter and my girlfriend there at Klaus's office. And here's where we went. So this is the village of Altrai up in northern Italy. So I drive into it. And I said, wow, this is spectacular. We get in. This is a, two years later. And this is a basket with those lupine beans, and that's Otto Wirth. He's been living in the same house since six, the, the, his family since 1637. So they dry the lupine beans and then they fry them? They dry them, they roast them, and then they percolate them and make right. almost a similitude for coffee. Yeah, like, like all of its Yeah. And so there he is in his house. Uh, he's, they're incredibly handsome, resilient, hardworking people. And there's the lupines. And this is the cafe, Altrai Cafe Alternative. And so what was funny is that the Italian Consortium of Tradition got behind this, did all kinds of research to verify that it was saludabile, which means healthy. Here, people have been drinking it for centuries, right? But the Italians had to, burocrazia, 
verificare che era buono per la salute, that was good for health. So they went ahead and they certified it and then they started re-establishing this incredible tradition. So here she is packing it up in a little store there in Altrai. And here they are inside the house. This is a house from 1637 made of hard wood. And that's Maria Worth, that's his sister. And there, there they are with a lupine patch out and back and there's one of our Mexican colleagues who was with us, my daughter, holding the plant in flower. And then the Altrai coffee in the little village. Okay, so these are the raw seeds right here. These are for planting, and then it's been roasted and ground here. So it makes the same exact volume. So you just grind it up, and then you're going to percolate it. And then it tastes so much like coffee, it's hard to believe. But it's not caffeine. No caffeine. It's, it's from a bean. Now, this is another little love story. This is also Italian. This is uh, the grape hyacinth. And it turns out that this is called a Lampishoni, and it's been subject of a lot of studies because it's an old Italian tradition from southern Italy. You've heard of it, you say but you've never had one. So it tastes kind of slightly bitter, but when, when I first discovered it, I was just like, wow, I'm so happy because I went to this little place uh, down in Puglia. And I was near San Giovanni Rotondo. I think I was in Manfredonia. And I went to Manfredonia and I went into a little gastronomica and the guy had this Lampishoni there. And I said, well, can you tell me about Lampishoni? He said, ma è il più bello cosa nel mondo. Noi facciamo questo da tanti anni qui. He said, the most beautiful thing, you know, you can imagine. So we bought the first uh, two jars of it and I fell in love with Lampishoni. It's a really exquisite uh, delicacy that they eat as an antipasto before you eat your meal. Okay, well, let's go. I'm going to show, show the next. So here's the prodotto, prodotto, prodotti tipici pugliesi, and this is the actual bulb. Uh, it's a little flower bulb, and it's very bitter. So they boil it several times, and then what they do is they uh, let it soak in water overnight. Then they make it sotto olio. In other words, they drown it in olive oil, and then they put salt on it, and you eat it with a toothpick or fork, and it's something you eat before the meal as an appetizer. Really delicious. Now, this is a cherchia here. These beans are grown all, they, they're a different kind of bean, which is very interesting because it's hard for me to clearly explain the confusion that ensued when beans came from South America because I also realized there were other kinds of beans already existent in Italy and other parts of Europe. So it was like there wasn't enough information going around that everyone considered the New World bean any different than the Old World beans that were there. They just kind of showed up here and there. There wasn't mass communication, so they kind of like suffused their way in. And there, for a long time, no one actually realized that they were new because it wasn't like there weren't newspaper articles saying, oh, a new bean is coming to your town. They just got there. And they were confused with uh, cow peas. Uh, they were also confused, confused with chechi, which is what this is. They were also confused with lentils, and they were confused with fava beans. So there was a bean world. In fact, I have a book up here, which I was going to give a few of the Italian students some interesting titles to read. Il Mangiatori di Fagioli. Because this is very interesting, because what we have here is a story so significant that the bean eaters were the poor people. And bean eaters all wanted to uh, advance and eat more meat, and that was a way they could prove that they were getting more affluent. So this book is very interesting about that history. Next. Uh, here I am with the Longhi family. The Longhis also produce an Italian vegetable, which you may be familiar with, which is called chicoria or chicoria. 
chicory can also be used as a coffee substitute, but it's also the, the what we call the Belgian endive is a chicory. And then as you will see, uh, it takes on other forms which are very spectacular, like these beautiful rossetti, which are grown in northern Italy. And the various head uh, endives or chicories. This one right here is from up near... Um, uh, Ferrara, it's grown all over in the northern plains of near Mantua. It's, it's very special stuff. Yeah, I've never seen it. If you let them grow, they don't become predominantly sweet. They, be, they become a little sweet. It's been bred out of them. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't selected for sweetness. Okay, so the only thing to reiterate, see, and I lose on this point every time. I don't know how I can become successful. It takes you two minutes. I'm not on... Uh, what is that channel? The shopping channel. This isn't a shopping channel deal. Just go to Great Garden Speakers and leave me a critique. When I get a thousand critiques, I'm going to Congress. And I got 167 right now. Okay, so the only thing to reiterate, see, and I lose on this point every time. I don't know how I can become successful. It takes you two minutes. I'm not on, uh, what is that channel? The shopping channel. This isn't a shopping channel deal. Just go to Great Garden Speakers and leave me a critique. When I get a thousand critiques, I'm going to Congress. And I got 167 right now. Thank you. You said that less was better than...